I just want to say welcome here on this Good Friday morning. My name's Tom, and I've got the privilege to be able to share with you uh, for the next few moments this morning. And to give you some background, as a community, we've been exploring what it looks like to pray together. And we're going to continue that this morning by looking at some of the words of Jesus that he said on the cross that we often wouldn't consider to be a prayer, but that's in actual fact exactly what they were. And the interesting thing about these particular words is that you don't have to have been to church very many times or have even read the Bible to have heard that at some point when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out at one point in a loud voice and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And I think that if we're going to begin to start to look at Jesus' time on the cross, there comes a point where we need to ask the question, why did Jesus say this? Because when you first hear it, it almost sounds like it's a cry of defeat. Like a man who preached a message of hope his entire ministry in his final moments lost all hope himself. Or even worse than that, it almost seems like God, in Jesus' darkest moment, abandoned him. And I don't know about you, but that's something I have to wrestle with. Because if God wasn't there for Jesus in his darkest moment, what does that mean for us when we journey into those difficult times in our lives? How can we trust that God is going to be there for us if he wasn't even there for his own son. So I want to explore that question for the next few moments. Why did Jesus say this? But to actually find the answer, we need to start to look at Psalm 22, because the reality is that when Jesus said this from the cross, it was a quote from Psalm 22. And even more than just a quote, it was the first line of Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what we start to see is that if we want to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us from the cross, then we actually have to start to look at Psalm 22 and what that has to say to us. So we just read through the first few lines of that. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now this is a Psalm of David. So as you read these first few lines, you ask the question, well, what's disturbing him so much? What's he wrestling with and struggling with? And the interesting thing is that we don't get that information because that's not what's most disturbing to him. It seems that what's most disturbing is that feeling of God not being with him in it. It's that sense of, I'm suffering here and where are you? That's what's getting to him. But what I want us to see here is that the psalmist chooses to press into that pain and to really try and understand why God is not with him in the midst of his trial. And he first starts to consider, well, is it God? Is God the problem here? Are you the reason that you're not with me right now? And we see in verse 3 that he comes to the conclusion, well, that can't be the case because you're holy. 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you and you delivered them. And then we see the progression. Well, if it's not you, if you're not the problem here, then maybe I'm the problem. And we see he enters into this insecurity in verse 6 where he says, but I'm a worm. I'm, I'm not even a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And suddenly he starts to be in this place of weakness and doubt, feeling that maybe he's not worth God's time. I think that this is a progression that we can relate to that sometimes in our own difficulties and struggles, that we struggle to reconcile the nature of who God is, who we know God to be, and what we see in front of us, our reality. And then that can lead us to a place of feeling like maybe God doesn't love us enough, doesn't care enough to be with us in it. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with here. What's interesting is he doesn't stay there, and that's important here. He doesn't stay in that place of weakness, but we see in verse 9, he says, but you brought me out when I was born. You made me trust when I drank my mother's milk. I was in your care from birth. Since my mother gave birth to me, you have been my God. And what we start to see is that he's speaking the truth that he knows about God over his weakness. And he's saying that, yes, this is what I see. I feel overwhelmed. I'm surrounded right now. And it feels like you're not with me, but I know that you are. I know that you have a purpose for me and that you love me. And that's what he begins to lean on, what he knows, not what he feels. And that ultimately leads him in verse 11 to say this, be not far from me for trouble is near and there's no one else to help. That sense of, I feel overwhelmed, and I feel like you're not with me right now, but I know that you love me, so I'm just going to say it anyway. God, be not far from me. Be with me in the midst of my struggle. And that's what this psalm is really about. It's a cry for closeness with God. And we start to understand a little bit more about that first verse. We start to see that it wasn't a cry from a loss of hope, but it was a cry from a place of hope. Because when we lose hope, that's when we stop talking, that's when we give up, that's when we push away from God. That's not what's happening here. The psalmist is pressing into God in his pain, he's inviting God to be part of it. And if we look at Jesus on the cross for, the mo for a moment, when he says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Yes, he was expressing the pain and the anguish that he was feeling, the separation from his father. But I believe he was also looking to verse 11. Be not far from me. He was inviting God into that moment. And in doing so, gives us the perfect illustration of what it looks like to journey with God in the midst of our worst. That we can be real and raw with God. We have permission to pray those kinds of prayers of why. 
Because ultimately what that leads us to is a prayer for closeness with God. And that's what we see the psalmist doing here, and that's what we see Jesus doing on the cross. But if Jesus is wanting to just express his pain, his anguish, his desire for a closeness with God, why choose this psalm? Because the reality is a third of all the psalms are lament psalms, are cries out to God. There's plenty of psalms that could have expressed these things very well. Why Psalm 22? Why is this the psalm he quotes on the cross? The interesting thing here is that what we start to see as we continue to move through this psalm is that up until this point, we can feel like there's parts we can relate to. There's the element of, yeah, I've been through difficulty, I've been through struggle, and I felt that God has been distant in that. So there's elements we can relate to, but suddenly getting to the end of verse 11, there's a bit of a shift that happens, and it starts to move past what we can probably relate to, and it gets strangely specific. Let's just read what it says. It says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bashan was an area known for its well-fed livestock. So these are huge, massive, strong bulls. He describes his enemies as bulls. He describes them later as lions and dogs. And he says that they're opening their mouths at me. He says that my enemies are strong and they're overwhelming. And without thought, All they want to do is destroy me. That's how he describes his enemies. And then he describes himself. And he says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like a melted candle within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of broken clay pot. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. And then get this, they have pierced my hands and feet. And I can tell how many bones I have. And suddenly we get this image of him being stretched out, hands and feet pierced, so that he can see each and every one of his bones. Then it says, the people look at me with wide eyes, and suddenly we see that it's not just his enemies that are present, but there's a crowd present, watching on what's taking place in front of them. They divide my clothes among them by drawing names to see who would get them. And at this point, many of us would be thinking, I I know what this is. I've heard this before. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. It's probably also the important time that we remember that this was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. And it is describing in exact detail the events of his death. And this is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Why? Well, I think that when he was up on the cross and his disciples and followers were watching on in absolute horror what was happening, their teacher, their leader that they'd followed for the past three years that they'd journeyed with, come to love and know as the Messiah and Savior of the world, the Son of God that would not only deliver them, but everyone being hung up on a cross to die, Everything they'd worked towards, everything they'd believed in, just coming shattering down in that moment. And then Jesus speaks out this psalm. A psalm that they would have known. 
a psalm that most likely they would have taken to memory. And then suddenly we see that they could have began to recall and move through what it says and the progression and how it actually explains exactly what they're seeing in front of them, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that the crowds would mock him and divide his clothes among him, and that in the midst of the chaos that they're seeing in front of them, maybe they could hold to the fact that God had a plan in all of this, that this was actually foretold. And suddenly there's this glimpse of hope. Hope that there was a plan beyond what they were seeing right here, a plan beyond the suffering and the pain. Because the interesting thing about this is that it reflects the nature of God, doesn't it? the nature of how God works in our suffering, when all we see is the suffering that's in front of us, the pain that we're in, God, in fact, does have a plan that's bigger than just that, even though we might not know what it is. A plan that points beyond the pain and beyond the suffering, and that's what the disciples are starting to see in this moment. And the interesting thing about this psalm is it doesn't just stop with the crucifixion, but it starts to show us what comes after. And as we read on, it says in verse 19, there's this cry for deliverance again, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. It's this repetition of verse 11, this prayer for deliverance. God, help me. Be near me in my pain, in my suffering. And then suddenly, out of absolutely nowhere, in verse 21, you have rescued me. When did that happen? Like, even before it moves to the next verse, suddenly, you've rescued me. But it's there. And we see this entire shift in the psalm, and it goes from a prayer for deliverance to a prayer of praise. And just watch the change here. He's no longer surrounded by his enemies, but he's surrounded by brothers. And it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, stand in awe of him. He's saying, I'm now praising God for what he's done. And each and every one of you should praise God too. Why? In verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard his cry for help. He's saying, when I went through suffering, he heard me. He answered me. He delivered me. He didn't forsake me. And then we read on in the imagery, it continues, this imagery of praise rising up after the suffering. And we see from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live 
forever. He's saying, when I was in suffering, I called out to God and he rescued me. But not only did he rescue me, now he will rescue each and every person who suffers because of what happened here. And then he says, and they will eat and be satisfied and paints this image of a banquet. There's so many references throughout this psalm to the life and the death of Jesus, and I encourage you over the Easter period to journey through it yourself, to start to uncover what they are. But this one in particular I want to draw our attention to, this idea of a banquet, this idea of eating together. Because this is something that Jesus communicated to his disciples just before he went to the cross. And what we call the Last Supper, where, you know, Wayne was talking about it before, where he broke the bread and said that this is my body to be broken for you. And he took the cup and said that this is my blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And then for the final cup of the night, when he would normally take it and he would say a prayer and give thanks, he said, I will not drink of this again until I drink of it with you in my kingdom. And then he went on to paint this picture that he would have to suffer and he would have to die before that could happen. That suffering would come first and then his death and then a celebration and a banquet. The disciples at the time, they didn't know what he was talking about. But here on the cross, he's pointing us to a psalm. He's pointing them to a psalm that's talking about it. This idea of a banquet where all will eat and be satisfied, where suffering will cease and everyone's invited. We see in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and tell about his saving power to a people yet to be born, for he has done it. What we start to see is that is that. The psalmist is revealing that what happened here, it's going to be celebrated in every nation, in every family, in every generation. The fact that the afflicted one was heard and delivered, but not only that, that because of that, each and every person in affliction will be delivered. And then they will be invited to eat together at a banquet where suffering will cease. Suddenly, I think we could probably safely say at this point, the psalm's not about David anymore. The psalm is about Jesus. The Son of God, who came down to earth to live a perfect life that we never could, only to die a death that we deserved for our rebellion against God. But the story doesn't end there, because three days later, he rose to life again, and now freedom, forgiveness, and hope beyond the suffering and beyond even death is freely available to us.
not just hope for the afflicted one, because it wasn't just him that was delivered. It's us that have been delivered now because of his sacrifice. So why did Jesus say this? Well, I think that it was a true expression of his pain and his anguish on the cross that came from that separation from God. And in that, all he wanted was to be close to his father. But I think that he was also pointing us to something, revealing something to us that was to come beyond that moment, beyond the suffering, beyond our suffering. Hope of a banquet where we will eat and be satisfied, free of any suffering and affliction. An open invitation to all who trust in his name. I love how this psalm ends though ends with this line, for he has done it. There's nothing else to be done. Jesus' sacrifice was all that was needed. See, Jesus said this exact same thing in his final words on the cross, just different words. It is finished. That's the message of Psalm 22. That's the invitation that Easter offers to us an invitation into that hope. And really, it's just simply the message of Jesus. So I want to close in prayer, and as I do, my prayer this morning might be your prayer, and if that's the case, I'd encourage you to think about the words and to press in as we close this morning. God, I pray for courage, courage to be real and to be honest with you when I'm at my worst, when I'm in those moments of struggle, to not pull away but to press in, to draw close to you, to invite you in, just as Jesus did. And God, we thank you for the hope that Jesus revealed to us on the cross the hope of a life beyond suffering and affliction. The hope of a banquet where we will sit in your presence and we will eat and be satisfied. And it's that hope that I ask that you help us to lean on this morning in this Easter period, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.